Welcome to the Constitutional Futures podcast series from Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law. In this series, I discuss the constitutional present and possible futures with those making leading contributions to the ongoing conversations, including people who are challenging dominant narratives and approaches. The focus today is on climate justice in an age of ecological emergencies. I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves to you uh, very briefly. I'm going to give you one minute each and going to start with uh, John. Yes, hi, I'm John Barry. I'm at Mount from the South. I'm a professor of green political economy here at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, I'm also co-chair of the Belfast Climate Commission, which is the only, uh, at the moment, commission uh, of its sort on the island of Ireland. Uh, and I'm also a recovering politician, but showing signs of recidivism, having spent seven years in the molehills of power in Ireland and North Down. Sean? I'm Sean Fern. Uh, I'm a PhD researcher at Queen's University Belfast in the Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action. And previous to starting the PhD, it was a policy advisor in the Arctic and Instalment in Economic and in Climate Policy. Amanda? Hi, I'm Dr. Amanda Slevin. I'm the Director of the Centre for Sustainability, Equality and Climate Action in Queen's. And I'm a research fellow with the Ground Spell Consortium in the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics. So my academic background is environmental social science, and my research focuses on multi-level climate action, energy conflicts, hydrocarbon extractivism, and just transition. And I have 20 years experience in youth work, community development, adult and community education, and Ireland and further afield. And that means I'm particularly interested in community climate action and how we ensure we bring everyone with us on the journey to a sustainable future for everyone who shares our planet. And my practical experience of this includes being a member and a former chairperson of Climate Coalition Northern Ireland uh, when colleagues and I were actively involved in driving forward Northern Ireland's first Climate Change Act. Peter. Uh, I'm Dr Peter Doran at the School of Law at uh, Queen's University. Um, my background is really global environmental politics and law. Um, I've been working at uh, various UN negotiations and processes for over 25 years, including climate and biodiversity. Um, but I also work very closely with uh, civil society organisations, two of which are the Environmental Justice Network Ireland, where I work on the rights of nature. And I'm a founding member of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, uh, who are convening across the island to look at the, the post-growth economy and in particular, the role of cultural actors in mobilising that conversation across the island. Thank you all very much and really delighted to welcome you all to the, the podcast today. We're undergoing a bit of an experiment today in terms of using the Law School podcast studio to do this. And John and Sean are, are here with me and Amanda and Peter are online. So, so bear with us. And in terms of first question, I suppose you'll all know that hardly a day goes by without somebody... Uh, or some initiative or some comment about constitutional change on the island of Ireland. And I suppose the question is why? Why is that a case? What explains that, Sean? Yeah, um, well, I think Brexit is the sort of sparking mechanism in the last, uh, you know, six or seven years. And it, it'd be hard to deny that, it's just the fundamental change in politics and in the political party landscape. And I think into the space that Brexit has created there um, and just completely reoriented pe people's perspectives on the constitutional question and how durable it was, how sustainable the current setup was. You've got the rise of civic nationalism and the rise of particularly Sinn Féin, whose election results in the past few years have been astounding. And I think few commentators would have predicted they seem to keep coming despite uh, 
even you know demographic changes and so on seem to have been limiting that so yeah i think those are those are major changes but also i uh, i think the dysfunction in the the northern state in the past well, we'll say decades, um, and I think for a younger generation, saying is this a sustainable, a truly sustainable political configuration where there is so much stasis and dysfunction, and the impact that'll have. So I think for younger people, particularly looking to the future, you know what is more sustainable and what's a more um, and a hopeful political setup. Amanda, what explains the current discussions? Thanks, Colin. Um- You know, I think constitutional change is something that's been of appeal to many people for a long time. People have grown up on the islands and learned about colonialism and its different impacts within communities and wider society. But like Sean, I think that Brexit has been um, a big driver, uh, particularly the shocks shocks and impacts of Brexit um, have acted as a a mechanism to think about who we are and where we sit in a globalised world. We know that most people in Northern Ireland didn't want to leave the EU. And were effectively coerced into change without their consent. Um, and I think Brexit prompted a rethink of identities that were for some unquestionably European. Um, but people have multiple identities. So we can be European and affiliated with different nation states, whether Ireland, the UK or other countries. So I think Brexit uh, is definitely a big factor. But we also know there has been historical movement building. Sean's referred to civic nationalism. Um, referring to one political party, I think others parties have well has shared that that uh, drive for constitutional change. But you know, I think about constitutional change, I think it's due to historical factors and contemporary forces and are really culminating in a focus now about how we can live together better on our shared island. Peter. Yes, well, I, I would agree that Brexit has been an amplifier, an accelerator, uh, but it, 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 it has been an accelerator of a what really is fundamentally uh, a crisis for political unionism. Um, who have failed to appreciate and really use the opportunity of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which offered uh, maybe a final opportunity to seize and build a, a moral imagination that might actually be inclusive and less reactive and defensive. And that they failed that test. And uh, with the electoral and demographic change, the, that failure has become all too apparent and increasingly apparent to constituencies that they once tried to appeal to. So I think that, yeah, there's, a, there's always been a sense in which the party politics has cut across the ambition and the genius of the agreement, um, but that is no longer, uh, it's no longer the case for the, for the leaders of unionism. They, uh, in, in many ways, the design of the agreement that holder of a contingent position around the possibility, the compelling promise of constitutional change, is catching up with the uh, the nature of political unionism and their failure of agency, the failure of their response uh, is becoming more and more uh, apparent to one and all. John, what explains what we're seeing unfolding? Well, I definitely think, as colleagues have said, the issue of Brexit, but I would like to... Uh, note that while it hasn't been without its impacts down south, this has largely been a northern phenomenon. I think it's accelerated what colleagues were saying with uh, debates that have been going on. Uh, and it's a once in a generational disruptive uh, intervention in our, our politics, no, no doubt about that. And with some degree of historical irony, the very party 
that champion Brexit, i.e. the DUP, uh, may have hastened the reality of a reunified Ireland, which they're so obviously set against. The other thing I'd say, and I'm not quite sure about the causal connection, whether Brexit resulted in this, is that now the North here is a society of minorities. Uh, we've seen the growth of the others beyond or in addition to or supplementing whatever word you want to use, the nationalist and unionist blocs. And I think that's been quite uh innovative, interesting, but I think, as Peter said, probably more disruptive to unionism than it probably has been to, to nationalism. One of the dominant sort of, well, one of the dominant phrases, the language used in this conversation is around preparation, you know, preparation and planning for change. And obviously, you know, the focus of this podcast is your own work around climate action and climate justice. I suppose the question of whether enough is really being done in that respect, and what extent the discussions on climate action, climate justice, have featured in the deliberations thus far, and what initiatives there are underway at, at present, John? Well, the reality is there's no united Ireland on a dead planet. Uh, in fact, there's no parti partitioned Ireland on a dead planet. And uh, I certainly think it's been absent from the issues of preparation, Colin, that you've been mentioning, um, whether it's the fact that when um, the UK was part of the EU, the entire Ireland, uh, island of Ireland was viewed as one eco-region by the EU, in a way um, establishing the, that, that the ecological logical way of looking at territory is not the same as contingent human political issues of, of borders and so on. Nature doesn't respect borders, you know, pollution will flow um, up and down uh, across borders and, and so on. I think that's a really important issue. We now live in the age of the planetary crisis or the age of the, the Anthropocene, that we do need a new ecological understanding of how we as a species and societies relate to the planet. And I would certainly say that from looking at the debates um, around reunification, I think Sean and myself, and Sean might want to talk about this in a moment, I think we've written the only published academic piece which has raised this issue, that um, where is the consideration of ecological and climate issues in the debate? What are the arguments for and against reunification? Like, will a reunified Ireland help us deal with the planetary crisis in a better way? Uh, and of course, that needs to be uh, looked at and, and the evidence provided for it. But if nothing else, the last thing I'd say is that the disruptive intervention of Brexit <clears throat> should also be used in terms of, you know, throwing up in the air many of our shibboleths and, you know, preconceived notions that if we are in this new phase of rethinking, reimagining relations, not just on this island, but, you know, it'll have to be also across these islands. Why not throw into the mix, as Peter has alluded to, moving beyond uh, economic growth? We certainly need to move beyond a carbon-based uh, energy system. And then there are also considerations on an all-island basis, which have received, I think, uh, much more um, attention. You know, what type of healthcare system will we have across the island? But I still stand by that idea that we do absolutely need to see the, the analysis and how would a reunified Ireland help in halting the biodiversity crisis that we're experiencing, uh, reverse our ecocidal trajectory uh, across the island. Sean? Yep. Uh, I mean, in terms of planning, there certainly is a conversation about political planning. So, uh, you know, a, a new political configuration, how are we going to govern ourselves, this type of thing. So a new 32 county state or however that might be imagined. Uh, and that conversation's live, Colin, with your own work or with Brendan O'Leary's contributions and so on as well. 
Uh, the broader climate question is they're planning for uh, an ecocidal future um, or the collapse of the planet's life supporting systems. No, there's not. And that's not unique to Ireland. It's, it's on an EU level. It's on a global level. Um, but if, I mean, this process of reunification is often discussed as, as a process of nation building and trying to build a nation that is not fit for the 21st century, that is not fit for a climate changed world right now isn't a credible uh, prospect. It's not a credible prospect for the for the status quo either and and I think people around here would advocate for that transformational economic change but that sort of you'll hear that maybe from green advocates that we need transformational social and economic change the the uh, UN Gen- uh, secretary general has said that we need climate action everywhere all at once on all levels that isn't what's happening and for the debate for for Irish unification, uh, I think if we're going to be looking at transforming the political infrastructure of the island and the social change and so on, we also need to be looking at fundamental economic change because that is the only thing that will provide a sustainable footing for a reunified state into the future in a climate change world. It needs to be, as we've discussed here, beyond growth. It needs to be beyond fossil fuels. And that transformational change, that planning, is not happening and it's certainly not being discussed in I think in mainstream circles of the re- reunification debate so yeah hopefully look we can bring some of that perspective here today but that's the fundamental change uh, I think that we need to be discussing it is a post-growth transition for this island beyond partition but also beyond the ecocidal framework that exists at the minute. Amanda? Yeah I completely agree with a lot of what Sean and John has said um, and I think on so, in some policy um, context, there is a recognition that we need to think about climate mitigation, adaptation and resilience in a coherent way on a shared island basis because nature doesn't know any boundaries. Um, and we see, I think, there's some recognition of the transboundary nature of greenhouse gas emissions and the need for coherent approaches within the North's new Climate Change Act. Uh, also, key bodies at the Department of the Taoiseach with the Shared Island Forums uh, the National Economic Social Council and others have been paying attention to a certain extent to um, all island climate action and uh, biodiversity loss. But ultimately, we still have two separate jurisdictions and one small island pursuing different climate strategies. Um, both have said they have similar levels of ambition in terms of um, pursuing net zero emissions by 2050. But both have deeply embedded conflictual policy directions uh, as a result of the path, the political economic pathways that, that we've uh, pursued um, that allow agriculture and other bigger matters as the big source of emissions on the island to continue activities without much change. So Sean's referred to the need for political transformation and points out the need for different economic strategies. And I think what actually we need is it's a socioeconomic, ideological, political and ecological transformation that's required we can't continue the way that we are. And, and to be frank, if we continue the way we are in terms of how we emit emissions and um, how we damage our environment, it doesn't really matter if we're united or not. We're contributing to a global problem that is, has disproportionate global impacts on our most bro- vulnerable uh, global brothers and sisters. So I think the, na- the na- nation state question is important to a certain extent, but I think what's more important is how do we ramp up our ambition? How do we have coherence uh, in terms of our ambition across the country? How do we transform the ideological uh, spaces and and systems that are focused on never-ending growth, like Sean has pointed out? But also, how do we transform that to look at what does an actual sustainable island look like? where we have genuine equality, where we have people actively living healthy lives in their communities and societies as part of a globally um, healthy planet. And 
when we see current policy and legislation on both sides of the border, we don't have those sort of ambitions. Um, so I, I kind of, I don't know if that answers your question, Colin, but some of my thoughts on where we are in terms of planning, you know, we have to be bigger than the nation state. We have to be bigger in terms of looking at the global context. We have to recognise that transformation is ideological as well as political and economic and is fundamentally social. And we have to bring people with us in those changes. And I don't see enough thinking to those different domains uh, in, in current discussions or in policy. Thank you very much. No, it addresses a question very well in the sense we're thinking about what more needs to be done to bring the discussions we're having here today into the centre of the conversation about the constitutional future. Peter, you know, what are your thoughts on that? How, how do we get these themes uh, into the mainstream of the conversations that are happening about the future of this island? Well, the, the more time that we give to planning and foresight, uh, the more depth and uh, the more seriously we uh, we take the the, the provocation of the ecological crises as a, a reframing of everything, of everything, including the, 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 the language, the, the models, the politics, everything that we uh, expect to discuss within the context of a, a new constitutional moment, constituting a new European state. All of that has to be informed, I think, by the uh, uh, both the transition. We, I could talk about the two just transitions. One is the transition towards a new constitutional dispensation. But the other just transition, of course, is the, the conversation about a transition to a new economy, a new society, one that um, will um, deliver ways of life, ways of organising our economy within the the ecological or planetary boundaries. Now, I'm, I've long been fascinated by the fact that we are, in terms of a timeline, a likely timeline, these two transitions, these two just transitions uh, are converging and one must begin to inform the other. And the other interesting perspective, certainly from my perspective, and an increasingly popular one, is that there's a, that the common um, narrative, if you like, is decolonization. When we talk about reunification, when we talk about uh, a new state, what we're really talking about is the final phase of decolonization of the island. And in the context of the new economy, in the context of climate justice, we also have to remember that the conventional dominant economic narrative, that one that was uh, born in the heart of the European imaginary, the heart of the, the imperial imaginary, was only possible as a, uh, only possible to imagine um, from the privileged perspective of uh, the power to impose unequal exchange with both people and nature from the, the heart of the European modern project. Now, these changes have to inform one another if we are not to adopt a kind of a default uh, economic system as part of the new design of the state. And I think there's a, there's a, a, a clear and present danger that we'll do that if we treat the climate uh, issue, if we treat the environment as part of a shopping list rather than a fundamental frame for thinking and reimagining the new constitutional moment that we're facing. Thank you, Peter. Sean, you want to come in there? 
Yeah, and it comes off uh, Peter's point very well there. I think it's it's not only likely, I think it's probable uh, at the sort of current level of discussion that a new Ireland, and I think it's probably on the way, given the sort of pol- political dynamics on the island, that it will just replicate the economic system as exists today. And I'm aware for maybe for listeners who aren't maybe familiar with this space and, and so on, it might be helpful to sort of ground some of this discussion. So, for example, the, if if the world economy was based on the ecological intensity of the Irish economy at the moment, we would need three planet Earths to sustain it. There is, uh, people might be familiar with donut economics, this very sort of helpful and popular heuristic sort of device for explaining planetary boundaries and so on. If people aren't familiar with that, they should look it up. Um, but yeah, by, by 2015, the world had breached five planetary boundaries. It's now six, and Ireland sits out, outside almost all of those six in terms of that planetary boundaries framework. So the amount of water that we use, the amount of energy that we use, and so on. So this isn't just an issue of reducing emissions, and that's where the debate seems to be at the minute. How can we make Ireland greener? You know, we'll, we'll have a, a broader sort of renewable energy sector and so on. It is a total transformation of how we interact with material and energy and all of that. And that is, a, a, when we sort of use this grand language about economic transformation that's what it is it's it's a fundamental change and that part it doesn't exist in the debate that sort of scale of ambition so yeah we we could have a, a greenwashed and sort of remote relatively decarbonized united ireland i think that's on the on the table but it's not a credible proposition in a climate change world john you wanted to come in yeah, I just wanted to pick up on, on Peter's important point of, of decolonisation and perhaps the reunification of the island, which I hope is not going to be simply all rule coming from Dublin. There's an opportunity to rebalance regional development and actually to uh, right a historic wrong across this island where we don't have local government at all. We have local administration. So I do think that should also be part of the conversation that this is about bringing opportunities and wealth and so on to the West, um, as well as then reinvigorating uh, local government. But we often say in in green circles that part of our problem is the colonisation of our imaginary by essentially a capitalist, pro-growth, consumerist model of the good life. Now, this should have particular resonance for us here in Ireland because actually my own research is on the origins of what we now call economic growth. And that's simply GDP increasing over an annual year for those uh, listening. But the origins of GDP actually lies in Ireland, in colonised Ireland in the 17th century with a a Cromwellian uh, colonial administrator called Sir William Petty, who conducted what's called the Down Survey uh, in, in terms of essentially how did Cromwell pay for his soldiers and the invasion at that time? Well, it was about the expropriation of Irish lands and resources, but you needed a statistical measurement of that. And even conventional economists would accept that what we now call GDP economic growth has its roots in those expropriating, colonising practices that were first tried out here in Ireland. And just to finish, I've always described this in a similar way that Marx described the even and historical uh, entry uh, of capitalism into the world as dripping from every pore with blood and and, and stains because of the violence. Well, similar economic growth, the origins of economic growth essentially are in a violent expropriating uh, logic. And of course, we're now witnessing the outcome of that in terms of the sixth planetary uh, extinction that we're now uh, seeing, the mass extinction of life on the earth that we're now coming up with science telling us this system simply cannot work. But I do think that would enrich 
particularly such an, uh, a historically attuned debate that we often have in Ireland. So I would certainly encourage those involved in this debate, go back into our own colonised history and to see that many of these green arguments are not foreign, they're not particularly new, but they've been this kind of substratum that's probably been, um, you know, sequestered in some way in this discussion. And now it's a time to bring, their, bring those back into purview, test them and see, well, what can we use this for in terms of reimagining? Uh, not just this this island, but actually what, what will it mean in terms of our ways of life? What will be the good life on this island? And ultimately, I think there's a lot of inspiration from, you know, people like Alistair Gray, who's a great Scottish novelist. And we talked about nation building and so on in this discussion. And he has a lovely phrase that apparently is in a stained glass window in the Scottish Parliament. And I'll paraphrase and it says we should work as if we're in the early days of building a better society. And that's the type of positive, even though the climate and ecological issues are often seen in a very negative way, there is a world, literally a world to win. There's a much better way of life uh, available to us if we simply let go of what we've had for at least 250 years in terms of this economic growth model. Thank you, John. One of the questions I was going to ask you, but but in a sense, you, you've all answered it in a, in, in, in a variety of ways. There is the language of a new Ireland in a sense that, you know, when I listen to, to each of you and your, your, your contributions, in some senses, you're, you're setting down a challenge to people who use that language to, in some senses, mean what they, they say, right? So you, your contributions are challenging dominant narratives and frameworks and, and, and actually the starting point for much of the debate. So I suppose just to press that a bit further, you know, the, the, the ideas, the arguments, the concepts that, 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 that you're advancing, you know, what challenges does that present for those who are engaged in a conversation about a new Ireland? John? Well, I mean, the reality is, you know, the seas don't give a monkeys if you're Catholic, Protestant or the centre. Uh, they are going to rise. I mean, we are up, we're so late now in addressing the planetary crisis that it will be, as it already is working out, it's going to be physics versus politics. Can politics rise climate? Not the Earth that needs saving. It's a habitable planet and indeed a habitable island uh, for us and our grandkids. So I do think the challenge is how do we weave into that planning discussion, the political discussion, uh, and to move beyond. And um, again, you know, this is provocative in a way, and people mightn't like me saying it, but for too often we've had what I would call 11 o'clock wolf tones type nationalism, where there's this been default ideological position that we need a reunified Ireland without any real sense. What does that mean? What's its basis and so on? How do we accommodate those who may not be fully on board with that? And I do think the ecological climate argument might be a way of reaching out to those who may be sceptical or a little bit scared. And we have to recognise, you know, you know let's, be, let's name it here, loyalists and unionists feel their backs are against the wall. They've not been led, as Peter and others have pointed out. And I do think there is in the ecological reconstruction of this island, you know, maybe the recovery of that United Irishman tradition that I began with in terms of recovering, you know, that uh, inspiration in terms of what a new Ireland would look like. Um, but it would have to recognise just finally that there's something unique about this part of the island. I mean, I described this over 20 years ago 
uh, when I was much more active politically in, a, in an article in Fortnite magazine when you used to be able to get it in paper copy. Called, you know, essentially that the uh, Northern Ireland, this part of the island is where these islands overlap. And we have to find some way of recognising those east-west those historical connections, which have often been not very positive. Sometimes they have. So for me, it's about you know having an ecological understanding of what sovereignty might mean in the 21st century. And that's very different than Westphalian nation-state kind of uh, territorially-based politics that we've understood up until now. And the last thing I would say on this is that we also need to include the non-human you know, where do those other inhabitants of this island come in? Now, if you're a hardened Republican, you'll say, what in the name of God is he talking about here? You know, but that's the challenge. How do we bring into this conversation, widening it out, in, not just in terms of looking back in history, but extending our purview into the future to take care of future generations? Amanda's already mentioned the issue of global uh, solidarity, but perhaps the most challenging for us as a society and as a, as a species is now, how do we extend our political, ethical purview to include the more than human world. And that's a really interesting conversation to have. And I'd be more than happy if any hardcore Republicans are listening to have a debate here at Queen's on that issue. Amanda, the challenges of the language of a new Ireland. Thanks, Colin. And, and you know, I agree with a lot of what John has said there, brilliant points as, as usual. Um, I suppose if we, if we go back to the discussion around uh, colonialism and what Peter said around uh, just transition and the links with decolonization, if you think about part of the mess of where we're in now, it's it, it, it's a legacy ecologically of capitalism, of this perspective that nature is a commodity that's only there for our use to make profit for those who control capitalism. And if we look at the growth of global capital, um, and its expansion, uh, particularly across this island and now our, our dependency on uh, foreign direct investment, those are all tied into patterns of, of global political economy that are deeply entwined with colonialism as well. You know, as Lenin uh, talked about, um, imperialism is that final stage of capitalism. And I suppose part of the challenge of a new Ireland is is seeing how we've come to be the way that we are through the ideology and practices of, of global capitalism, the links with that and imperialism and colonialism on this island. And a new Ireland has to transcend all of that. Um, it has to transcend how we view nature, how we view each other. How do we understand, you know, John's talked about what is a good life? What is a good life? What does it mean to look for a new Ireland where we see each other as global sisters and brothers sharing water, air, resources, food within our island, within our uh, socio-ecological island, within our planet. So how do we think differently that way? And how do we also make those connections with moving towards a, a new Ireland that is not, as Sean has said, just a greenwashed, uh, somewhat decarbonised continuation of a status quo? How do we transcend all the structures that have evolved historically that have created the system of uh, an ecosystem, ecocidal system that is dependent on the exploitation and destruction of nature, that's also dependent on the exploitation and destruction of people. Because we know that capitalism, uh, it doesn't, it isn't a ship that lifts all boats, uh, as we've often heard that phrase in Ireland uh, about economic um, economic activity as a, as a tide that rises all boats. Um, capitalism doesn't do that. And so to, to move towards a better future uh, and a new Ireland, we need to rethink all these 
historical processes and patterns and come up with new ways of being. And the precedents are already out there. Communities are saying, we want to live within planet boundaries. We want to live together in solidarity. We want a different way of being. Um, and I can understand, you know, some of my colleagues have highlighted there are those who fought their whole life and, and have grown up where the focus has been on once we've united Ireland, then we can sort everything else out. We can't actually. We are in the middle of a triple planetary crisis, as the UN describes it, with a triple planetary crisis of climate breakdown, of pollution and, and biodiversity loss. We can't wait. Uh, and so when thinking about a new Ireland, we rethink the basic premises, the ideologies underpinning how we see a new Ireland. It has to be global in nature and orientation, but also has to fundamentally rethink the political economic structures in this island uh, and uh, in our planet more broadly. So just some of my thoughts there around some of the challenge we face in a new Ireland. Thank, thank you, Amanda. I want to move on to, to, to a question about the framework around the Good Friday Agreement. The agreement's become, understandably, the key reference point for much of the discussion. But I'm often intrigued as to what that actually means, what it means to say that the conversation we're having about the constitutional future is framed by the Good Friday Agreement in the context of the discussion we're actually having in, in this podcast. Peter? Yes, well, I think the, you know, the, 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 great, the agreement was an act of genius, really, when you think about it, because um, it, it, it began to uh, invite us to think about the integrity of our relationships and transforming uh, relationships that have been informed by trauma, violence, colonialism, um, silencing of others, um, the, uh, you know, the exclusion of others and their voices. Um, so the, 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 the agreement established that we had to reinvent, reimagine and revisit our relationships with one another. And just to pick up on a, a point that John began to make, in terms of the future, in terms of a future agreement, a future constitutional uh, settlement or constitutional moment, relationality, relationships will be absolutely central. In many ways, we have to prefigure those integral relationships and extend our sense of who is to be uh, part of the circles of relationship and integrity, and that will have to extend to uh, rights to nature, to moving beyond the colonial notion that the land of Ireland, that the mountains and the valleys and the seas and the atmosphere are simply there to be valued only as standing reserve for capital. So one of the, 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 blind, the, the blind points um, around the agreement because of the, the times uh, that uh, in around 1998 and the, the, the years that preceded it, one of the blind spots, I should say, was the, the way in which it, it was very much framed as a neoliberal um, set of institutions. Neoliberalism was the default economic background and expectation. And for some reason, you know, for, in some ways, that's why we haven't really moved economically or socially, in terms of Northern Ireland or in terms of, uh, you know, taking those issues seriously in the institutions. And just as the neoliberal moment informed 
the Good Friday Agreement for all its genius, for all its contribution, the ecological moment will frame the iteration of the agreement and the reimagine of the agreement on the island. And I think there are two two very significant clues about the priorities that will have to inform the way we operate the agreement in the future. One is the recommendation from the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity for the incorporation of the rights of nature into the Constitution, into the Irish Constitution. And the other very powerful signal that has come to us over the past six months is the wonderful um, contributions that Michael D. Higgins has made challenging our institutions to look beyond the neoliberal capitalist model of growth and in particular challenging the university as a site of, uh, of so-called enlightenment education, that part of the, the new uh, economic paradigm, the new education for the economy, has to take on board these critiques. And I don't think those who are serious about the new Ireland taking forward the agreement can afford to ignore either of those signals. Thank you, Peter. Sean, that, that issue of the agreement framework, given that there is quite a lively debate at the moment about the operation of the agreement itself? Well. Yeah, certainly. Um, it would be undeniable to say it hasn't been a political success. And even for we're talking here about reunification, for proponents of reunification, it is the mechanism that, that it is the only viable mechanism that's going to facilitate that transition. Now, obviously, that can be supplemented by citizens' assemblies and so on, and a change to a major change of the governance infrastructure if we want. And that's what we want to create. But Peter's touching some of it there. It, it hasn't, um, and it, this is, I suppose, bringing in the green and ecological perspectives, and, and maybe it's also a bit, uh, a bit too much of an expectation to put on the negotiators of the agreement itself, but it has firmly embedded a fundamentally unsustainable economic system. And just to give some of, some of work I've been doing recently, since the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the economy in the North has grown by some 50% in real terms. Uh, we produce £16 billion worth more well, of, of goods and services in 2019 than we did in 1998 but we have fundamental shortages in every almost social provision that we can think of public transport public transport in rural areas out where I'm from in South Armagh look at health waiting lists uh, you know social housing renewable energy provision and so on so even though we have this model that we and, and that's the closest thing I think you'll come to consensus with the sort of broad political landscape in the north is that you know, economic growth and the model by which that should be achieved, which is FDI and welcoming in a sort of a handful of classy office buildings in South, South, South Belfast and somehow that will create broad economic development across across the region. That is the consensus and it hasn't delivered, I suppose, uh, in any of the, the major sort of ecological or social changes that we need and the changes that we have seen, this massive expanse in production, and I'm coming from an economic background here, you know, we have... Uh, I suppose production everywhere. We have a growth of almost everything everywhere in in major sectors, and yet shortfall all over the place. So the question is, and moving on from the Good Friday Agreement and into a reunified space, is in the context of planetary boundaries in the ecological envelope that we have, is the economy doing the right thing and? Do we need to move beyond the model that the Good Friday Agreement has embedded in and has created this consensus around? Uh, the answer is yes, I think, from the perspective of people taking place here today, or taking part in the podcast. 
but yeah, I think people should be be discussing that a wee bit more about this this the I suppose the economic shifts that have happened here since the Good Friday Agreement have they been good? They have not led to any sort of regional rebalancing. They've led to a lot of economic growth, but I don't think that passes the smell test for people. I don't think people in working class communities in Belfast or in isolated rural areas can understand what that growth is, and when they hear. Uh, a newsreader saying, listen, the economy's grown by 2-3%, fantastic. That That isn't how it's felt. And it, I, again, this was the challenge for proponents of, of Irish unity, of which I'm one, is if that is going to be the offer for a reunified state, that we're just going to continue with this growth model. And some of these papers out there will, will say between 20 and 30 billion additional GDP. That's what an, an, a United Ireland will unlock. Uh, that won't pass the smell test either, and and it's also ecologically impossible. So, yeah, that that broad model that the Good Friday Agreement has embedded in in economic terms isn't sustainable. But politically, yes, a success. But it's not just a, a political transition that's happened. John, you want to come in there? Yeah, now we have to remember that the the agreement and the institutional settlement was the outworkings of a peace process. Uh, and there were many, many gaps, not least in terms of victims. There was no proper DDR, you know, demobilization, demilitarization and reintegration strategy, which, of course, we're still seeing the legacies of. There's also the issue that Peter picked up on and uh, Sean in a different way of what, what sometimes called the double transition. What happened here in the North? We went from war to peace to neoliberalism presided over by the US Chamber of Commerce, the, of course, the US and the EU, as well as the Irish and British states, as, um, you know, they were the core guarantors, obviously, but it was a lot of input from the EU and the US, both of which are thoroughly neoliberal institutions. And for those who are interested in progressing the debate about reunification, we also have to put on the table um, about whether a reunified Ireland leaves the EU because many of these issues we're talking about in terms of staying within planetary boundaries, post-growth, a well-being economy, will come up very quickly against the reality that the EU is constitutionally, legally, a neoliberal institution. And that, again, I've not seen much debate because uh, the assumption seems to be a bit like East and West Germany, bada bing, bada boom, we come together and we're all good parts of the European Union. And I think we need to actually start questioning that. Is that, do we want to stay as part of the EU when we move into a new constitutional space? Because as somebody who was a Remainer, uh, I am now changing my view in terms of seeing that there is an honourable argument, not for Brexit, but for Lexit a kind of left-wing argument for actually removing ourselves from, uh, to use that word, the colonisation of uh, parts of our economy um, by the EU. Let's remember that during the last global financial crisis, the Republic of Ireland's economy was essentially colonised. And uh, the European Central Bank and uh, the IMF essentially ran major parts of of the economy. So I think that probably deserves its own part, actually, Colin, in terms of where is the EU in, in this reunification debate. But that issue of when we went from war to peace to neoliberalism has actually meant that here we are 25 years after the agreement, and the same wards that were the most deprived in 1998 are still the most deprived wards. Eight of them are majority Catholic wards, if you want to look on the NISRA website. Where's the promised peace dividend for our working class communities? It simply hasn't been tangible for them. So I do think that the agreement itself, we've got to understand, in my view, was always a provisional peace settlement 
the outworkings of that, I think, in my view, has probably run its course. It is inbuilt, as you would well know, uh, Colin, within the agreement, there is provision for a new and reform. And I think we absolutely need to have that now in terms of perhaps moving beyond the designation of unionist and nationalist, because essentially that only uh, re reinforces our sectarian divided um, society rather than tries to do anything to, you know, uh, reduce that. that. That adage that, you know, high walls make good neighbours, I think that was the watchword of the agreement. Well, I think now it's time to start breaking down those walls. Well, both metaphorically, but also physically. But I certainly would not be proposing taking down peace walls in case anyone's thinking that's what I'm proposing. The communities who live in and around those peace walls, they are the ones who, who should decide on that. But I do think that the agreement itself, in my view, has largely done its job. A bit like capitalism and carbon and growth, we should give it a good burial. Thank it for its service in the same way that we should thank carbon energy. And indeed, we should thank you know, the capitalist system that's, you know, delivered quite a lot of good things, but we simply have to move on now. So it's not about simply, you know, burying the agreement and, and scrapping it. Is it capable of reform? I don't even know what types of reforms you were trying to introduce. I've given some ideas there about removing the designation of unionist and nationalist, but certainly, and I'm not alone in this, I think many of us would see there's a tiredness there's a kind of, it's, it, it's fraying at its edges, the agreement, it's not delivering. And certainly in the context of our debate here about a reunified Ireland, it now is the most appropriate time in terms of, is that part of the preparation for this debate on a border poll? Which to me, I've often found the most bizarre part of the agreement. And I know you've done a lot of work on it, Colin. How do we know, what evidence does a Secretary of State use to actually call a border poll. And as someone who teaches democratic politics, I can think of no existing institutional, political, or even theoretical model whereby you only call a poll if you know what the outcome is going to be. It's just absolutely crazy. When I first came across this 25 years ago and reading the agreement, I said, who wrote this? How can you only call a vote when you know what the outcome is going to be. The whole point of calling the vote is to test and see whether or not the support for the proposition that you're putting before the people. John, well, I'd encourage our audience and everyone to listen to the 16 other episodes in this series to get further insight into some of the questions that are raised there. You'll be delighted to hear we're, we're drawing to the close a couple of questions uh, just to, to, to end the podcast. I want to go to Amanda with a question about the... Because listening to everything that's been said today, it strikes me that that shared island framework, um, which is really dominating a lot of the discussion from the perspective of the Irish government, I suppose, how useful that framework is, Amanda, and whether within the context of that initiative, enough is being done on the questions that you're raising today, all of you. Thanks, Colin. That's a really important question and a really relevant question. And I suppose to think about... Um, a shared island. You know, if we look basically at our island, um, we think about, you know, Ireland, Ireland as an island began to form about 1.8 to 1.9 billion years ago. Uh, our human species, Homo sapiens, began to evolve in Africa about 300,000 years ago. So Ireland as an island has existed far longer than, than we have. And indeed, the first humans to ever colonise Ireland uh, arrived about 12,000 years ago. So shared island um, framework is a useful way to emphasise the ecological and geological interconnections of all of us who share this island. And I think um, it's important to recognise that, but also to recognise that um, 
our existence is minuscule, uh, geologically speaking, um, and transcends, you know, our planet and our shared island as a living entity transcends politically constructed borders. So I think we're, where we're at now in terms of shared islands, absolutely. If we can reframe the shift from focus on um, economic growth, on, on political arrangements, to think about the socio-ecological components, um, I think then the shared island framework holds up and that labelling. But also just to, to add that as well, you know, we've talked quite a bit about um, the benefits of the Good Friday Agreement. And there has been some, Sean and John have highlighted the political benefits and, and how the economic benefits have been extended to some, particularly some groups of uh, multinational corporations largely. But I also need to think about the weakness that we have now. Yes, let's think about a shared island, but we're also in the context where on both sides of the border, we are having deepening patterns of inequality. We have people who have not benefited any time really of economic growth where their inequalities are deepening, where their risk of being left behind as we try to move forward to a more stable future. Um, and also, so we have these patterns of disadvantage and inequality that are deepening, uh, particularly during the cost of living crises. But we also have um, a state of negative peace. The peace we have in Northern Ireland is fragile. Um, and if we look at the work of Johan Galtung, who studied peace uh, and transformation, you know, what we have is negative peace. We have the absence of war, but we don't have positive peace. We don't have healthy uh, interacting communities focused on, on what we hold in common beyond ethno-nationalist affiliation. We don't have real positive peace. Um, and real positive peace is about equality, social justice, about fairness. Uh, and for me, I add to that the, the socio-ecological components where we have to live in and, with, um, in and with our planetary boundaries. So a shared island framework is useful to understand our interconnections, but we have to go beyond where we're at now. We have to think about how does a shared island become focused on the ecological interconnections, about how we can work together collectively on both sides of the border as global citizens to address the planetary crisis that we now face. Th thank you, uh, Amanda. I'm, I'm going to now move on really to the last question. I'm going to give everyone a chance to to respond to this question. And, and answering it, I'm conscious of all our age differences in the room, but... Um, it's just, it's a framework that's often used, and that's about our lifetimes. And, and I'm wondering, feature of a guess today, do you believe you will see a new and united Ireland in your lifetime? I'm going to start with Peter. <laughs> I, I wonder why you asked me first. <laughs> You'd be first to go, Peter. Am I the most unlikely person to see it? <laughs> um, You're the elder. You're the elder. Well, I, um, I mean, I would love to see uh, a, a new Ireland, a new, a newly constituted uh, shared space where we have reimagined so much in terms of what we mean by sovereignty, territory, the land our relationships and what we mean by shared communities as well, because I hope that we'll be extending community to uh, the more than human. But, you know, Colin, as a, as a, uh, a Zen Buddhist, <laughs> um, one of our precepts really is not to, not to be too attached really to outcomes within our own lifetimes, but to try to prefigure and celebrate and, uh, and, uh, bring futures into into being through our, our own lives of commitment and uh, engagement 
without without that anthropocentric compulsion to maybe uh, look forward. You're to avoiding the, the question here, Peter. That was a yes honestly, or no answer. Honestly, there. I, I think um, I. I think it would be slightly egotistical to uh, to to suggest that you know the only United Ireland that I w- want to see is the one that I'll see in my lifetime. I want it to be timely, and I want it to be one of integrity. And I'm prepared to let that happen after I'm long gone, if that's necessary. But hopefully not. <laughs> Excellent, Peter. Thank you very much, Sean. Sure. Uh, yeah, like back back to the earlier discussion and this sort of dichotomy maybe between a United Ireland and New Ireland. I think yes, we will see in, in my lifetime anyway. We don't need to go into what that is, but uh, yes, in my lifetime, I think we will see United Ireland. I think the political da- dynamics are such they are such now that I can't see how it won't happen given demographic shifts, political shifts, the reorientation of Brexit and so on. Some of the stuff that we've talked about, whether that is a New Ireland in the terms that we've discussed today, I'm much less pessimistic um, and that is cause for action it's cause for optimism and so on to, to get out and make that case that it needs to be a a, a, a transformed you know relationship with nature and, and a, a different economic dispensations to make to make that new Ireland sustainable in economic and social terms but yeah I think that's the the split we'd be talking about in political terms yes and but a new Ireland fundamentally new that case doesn't exist I think in the mainstream at the moment and it's up for us maybe around this table to make it Thank you, Sean. Uh, John? Yes, I I don't think I'll see uh, a United Ireland in my lifetime. I'm For full disclosure, I was born in 1966, so 50 years after the Easter Rising. I, I don't think by 2066 we will have a, a reunified Ireland. I certainly will have a border poll or maybe even two, but, but certainly I, I'm not as uh, optimistic as perhaps Sean in thinking that there's this inexorable uh, guarantee that somehow uh, a border poll will, will be carried and that will then... Uh, you know, bring about uh, a reunified um, Ireland. I mean, but again, a bit like Peter um, uh, probably explains a lot of my own political activist academic work is that I often see myself now, full disclosure, I'm a completely collapsed Catholic, not, you know, uh, not even a lapsed one. But I see myself as John the Baptist, not Jesus. It's about laying down the, the seeds for others then later on to perhaps uh, reap the uh, rewards, because this is a a struggle, you know, and not just in the traditional republican sense of eight hundred years of colonialism and anti-colonial uh, struggle, although that needs to be acknowledged and, and recognised. But we're also talking about now another dimension of struggle, of decolonising our imaginaries, decolonising a lot of our common sense views of what a good society is. And as I say, I go back to whatever one's position is on uh, the constitutional question. I welcome the fact that it, it offers this disruptive moment where a lot of these common sense views can now be thrown up in the air and, and, and re-examined. Uh, but I do think my, my children, and I've got two, two daughters, I think they may live to see a, a reunified Ireland. And I'd love to think that we move beyond this. I, I, my, my fear with this language of a shared island, and I, I don't know if she's listening to this pod, perhaps she could confirm, but my understanding is that it came about from on Taoiseach's office 
in the formation of the coalition government in 2020 and was actually at the suggestion of Claire Bailey, who was then the Green Party leader in, in the north. And that's where this idea of a shared island came about, because it's more politically palatable than a united Ireland, uh, picky for unionists and, and loyalists. And I can see the, 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 the impeccable kind of strategic political logic of that. But in the same way that I'm very sceptical about shared education as opposed to integrated education, it's a kind of a milk and water version of what it is that we're trying to propose, which I think is a much bigger reimagining, a rethinking, you know, that we need to actually think beyond the established notions of nation state building. Uh, that's 21st century. That's fit for the age of our planetary uh, crisis. So short answer is I don't think I live to see it. Assuming I live to 2066. That wasn't the short answer, John. <laughs> you can never get a short answer from me. You can tell I was a politician, but I do think my children may. Thank you, John. Um, and last word to you, Amanda. Thanks, Colin. Um, so I think, but like what Sean has said, you know, I think a unified Ireland might be possible in my lifetime. Um, I think I'm probably in the middle of different ages here. I've been alive around 40 years, just over 40 years. And in that time, we've we've moved from a place of open war- warfare, particularly for those of us living um, in Ulster, towards a more peaceful society. So we've seen change can happen quite rapidly. Um, but we're living in a time of massive issues here on, across the whole island. We have inequalities and inequal- and homelessness arising. And we're seeing the emergence of a dangerous far right who are willing to use extreme methods to pursue regressive um, socioeconomic uh, and political change. So I think that a new and united Ireland can only occur if we bring all people of all people sorry if you bring people of all backgrounds together on the journey, committing to what we hold in common as human beings facing a global climate and ecological crisis, where we need to think and act together um, as a human species facing the greatest existential threats to our survival. So if we can prioritize what we hold in common as humans. Uh, and going beyond ethno-nationalist affiliations to nation states, I think that could help us see the need for uh, a new Ireland that is focused on genuine sustainability. But to get to there, to get to either a new and or united Ireland, we have to think about how we get there, what mechanisms we use, what it looks like, what are the values that we hold in common, um, social and ecological values, and how we treat all people and non-human species living on the island. And, you know, any transformation should be fair, inclusive of all, and genuinely prosperative, recognising that we all will live better in peaceful, healthy and sustainable communities for a better future for everybody. Well, thank you all very much. Actually, your answers to that um, last question encapsulated a lot of, of the discussion because I think in a wonderful way, you all in various ways were doing what this podcast was actually about, which was challenging some of the language that is currently out there around this conversation, just in the answers that you gave. So I was asking you questions framed in that sort of language, and you were you were responding to that. I think it's one of the one of the themes coming out of this discussion and your answers as well was the idea of the importance that Peter highlighted there of getting it right almost, you know, of of getting not just the outcome right, but the framing right. And getting it right from and maybe keeping the focus on that for, for now in terms of the preparation and planning. So I think it's really, I really enjoyed listening to the discussion in terms of how you know, we bring some of these discussions around climate justice, climate action and framing 
the future of our planet and the island to the heart of the, the conversation. I want to really thank all, all of you. Today has been an experiment in using this studio in the law school and doing this online, and we'll see if the experiment itself works. And I appreciate the time, participation, and engagement, and really genuinely fascinating insights uh, that you've provided to me and the audience today. But more importantly, listening to what you've all said, to wish you all the very best on your ongoing work. Thank you all.